And it is an honor today to have uh, Reverend Dr. Brian Widbin with us. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he led our very first trip to Israel, uh, which was, what year was that? 2012? 2012, yeah. And uh, that trip changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. Uh, and I think anyone who was on that trip will tell you the same thing. As uh, those of us who gathered early, every, every Sunday at 9.30, everyone who's working gathers early for prayer over near the coffee. Um, and if you're looking to get involved, that's an excellent way to get started. Just jump in, come a little early. And as we were praying or talking about uh, what, what's going on in our world, Dr. Widbin interrupted and just started to share um, his heart. Interrupted is probably not the right word to use there. Interjected, right? Um, rightly. And he started to cry because of his heart for peace between Israel and Palestine. And I want you to know, every place we went in, on the Israel trip the first time, this brother preached a sermon and so poured out the love of Jesus, he wept everywhere we went. I couldn't get enough. I didn't want to leave. And it's why you've heard me say multiple times, I'm going to go back again and again and again. So for those of you who uh, are praying about if this is the year or if next year is the year, if we need to postpone, if they get on the Israel trip, I just want to encourage you, please continue to lean in and listen to the Lord. But you're going to see the heart of Jesus in our brother this morning. Uh, and I want to invite you to come on up here so I can pray for you. Um, but uh, let's, let's give our brother our attention, but also our, uh, an open heart, okay? Thank you, brother. Love you, bro. You too. Can I pray for you? Yeah, please do. Jesus, I just lift up Brian to you right now, and I thank you for the heart that I see and everyone sees in him that looks like you, that speaks like you, that cares like you, and that leads us all closer to your heart, Lord. I thank you for the way you've made this man a peacemaker. Not surprised when he doesn't find peace, but sent to help make it between Israel and Palestine. And I pray for those renewed efforts to bring incredible fruit. But Lord, would you bless him now? Would you anoint him in Jesus' name with the words to say yours, with the heart to say them with yours? And Lord Jesus, would you ready our hearts and minds that we would receive your good news for us today. In your name alone, we pray, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks, brother. Well, good morning to you. I may look strange to you, but you don't look strange to me. I've followed you all over Rockland County. <laughs> you know, I, I preached at All Souls, didn't I, at Nanuet. And I preached, uh, uh, although I think, William, yeah, over at Spring, was it Spring Valley? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, Chestnut Ridge, right? So, and, and I think you're trying to get away from me. You keep changing your location. But I found out where you were going, so I'm here this morning. And, and please, uh, I'm thankful that my friend, Will and I are good friends, he called me Brian. You know, some people still call me Dr. Widbin. And I tried that with my wife years ago. And she wouldn't go for it, you know? So I, I just gave that up. So my name is Brian, and I trust maybe... Uh, as Israel opens, and I feel confident it will be open by August. We're about 10 months away. If God puts that on your heart, you can't say no to him. Because I believe that nobody goes to Israel, right, my friend, except they're invited by God. Because he just wants to spend a little time with you in his home. So don't say no to that. 
He'll draw you there, and you won't be, un you won't be comfortable where you're at if you don't join us in Israel for that trip. I feel confident that we will go, but in the, the circumstance that Israel's closed, it's closed right now, and uh, won't open, they say, until sometime in, de in December, but nobody knows. But if Israel's closed, we can't go. But other than that, this is the best time to go. Right after there's been, I call it a disturbance, because I've lived with this for 40 years. Can you believe that? And I'm only 26, so I don't know how I've been doing this for 40 years. But, but you, you see these things all the time, right? You wish you didn't. That's what got me involved in the peace effort about seven years ago intensively. And people say, why are you doing that? Wait for the Prince of Peace to come. He's going to bring peace. And I say, I know that, but I just want to be doing what, he, what his heart is for. When he arrives, he'll recognize that this is the good work of, of, of God in the world, and I want to be about that. So making peace has kind of been my, uh, my life over about the last seven years, so much so I finally had to retire from the seminary and get out in the field a little bit, and I've never regretted it. Uh, I, I tend to be the kind of person that likes to beat his head up against the wall, I guess, <laughs> a little bit, because there are many, many failures or many, much adversity, but I believe it's coming, and he's coming, and I want to be about doing the good business of God when he arrives. Anyway, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I found you over here and in Suffern. Who knew you'd be in Suffern? And you're, you're covering all of Rockland County, aren't you? I like that. And you know, it's named right, isn't it? Rockland. This is, ministry is hard here in our county. And I want to give credit to you today. Bless you uh, for the work you're doing here. You've endured here. And God grant you courage and endurance in the work you will continue to do in the future. Do it well right here in Rockland County. I want to start with a little story uh, this morning, something that happened to me a few years ago. Will was talking about change my life. This is kind of a change my life uh, circumstance, and you wouldn't, it snuck up on me, but I was invited to preach at a church up in, in Connecticut. I didn't know the church. I'd never been there before. I barely knew the pastor, but he invited me to come, so I'm coming, and I just got off an Israel trip, so I'm a little delirious, you know, uh, after the jet lag. But I agreed to come, and, and it occurred to me as I'm getting in the car to come, I didn't know where the church was. That happens to me a lot. And so what I did was I checked out the website and found out the address. Easy these days, right? Everybody's got a website. So I showed up there a little early, about 8.30, for a 9 a.m. service, and I was at an apartment building. And I'm thinking, well, you know, a church can look like most anything these days. Maybe this apartment building is the church. And after some effort there, I found out it was not. But I did find out that that's where the church offices were. They met for worship at a different location in Greenwich. So I'm wondering what to do. And fortunately, I see on the corner there's a guy at a filling station filling his, his uh, gas tank with fuel. So I decided to, to, to walk along and see if I can get some help from him. So I said, sir, I'm a little bit of a trouble today. I'm looking for a church. And so he looked around, a little astonished that this guy on Sunday morning had accosted him like this. And he said, well, he looked around, he said, well, there's a church right over there. <laughs> and I looked, and yeah, it's a Roman Catholic church, and I, I was quite sure the priest had not invited me to preach there that day. So I said, well, yeah, it, but it's not the right church. And he looked at me, and he 
suddenly became very sympathetic, and he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, you know, my friend, when you're in trouble, any church is the right church. <laughs> and he got me on that, right? But he got to me thinking, as I was late to preach that morning, what makes a church the right church? And I couldn't get that out of my mind or out of my heart, and things began to change in my life as a result of that, that I wanted to be a part of the effort of God, what he was doing in the world for peace, and he's doing that through the arm of the church, and I wanted to make sure uh, under the, the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit that I could be part of that effort. Um, I'd like to look with you this morning at a familiar passage of Scripture. You've heard it. I actually heard it quoted the other day on one of the cable news shows. Uh, it's from the Sermon on the Mount passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is probably a collection of talks that Jesus had given various times around Capernaum in Galilee. And... Uh, uh, these were later gathered and they were edited to address a problem that Jews were facing in the first century. What they struggled with was an apparent contradiction between what they believed, their articles of faith, you know, and what they actually experienced in the world. I'll bet you've had a few questions about that from time to time in your own life. Anyway, here was their problem exactly. Jews couldn't figure out why, after hundreds of years, they could still be living under foreign domination in a land supposedly ruled by God. The kingdom of God made little sense to them, with Rome still around and in full control of everything. Now, these questions and this problem are actually related to something we call the covenant faith of Israel. Covenant faith was sort of a constitutional principle given to the people by God when they entered the land of Canaan, generations before. They were promised then that if they would devote themselves fully to God, that land would be their land. But if they turned away from him to idolatry, that would be to worshiping the local gods of the economy, well then they would forfeit that land and be driven out to be occupied by another nation. There's an underlying principle there, and the principle is that God will reward righteousness and he will punish evil. That's the covenant faith of Israel, in a nutshell. It's expressed in the Bible for the first time in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verses 13 through 17. These words are important and they appear often in Jewish rituals still today. You want to read them at the close of the service. In fact, they are so foundational for Judaism that for centuries, religious Jews have recited them twice a day. They record them on pieces of vellum, roll them up, and nail them to the door jams of their houses so they'd never forget their deal with God. And for us as well, this principle of divine justice has become definitive for Western culture. Have you ever heard anyone say that God has blessed America because it has honored God? Or maybe the reverse, that the troubles our nation is in today is because of God's judgment upon our sin and idolatry. Well, that thinking, those ideas are rooted in the covenant faith of Israel. 
But as I said, in Jesus' day, Jews had begun to question this principle because it just didn't seem to be working. They'd given up their idols when they were driven out of the land into captivity. But when they come back, the kingdom wasn't returned to them. So they felt betrayed. They felt that God wasn't living up to his end of the deal. But what if some upstart rabbi would come along one day and tackle this problem differently by redefining the nature of idolatry and the kingdom? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has the idea that these are not external realities. They are internal conditions. According to Jesus, idolatry is not about graven images. And it's not even about those things or those people that you place higher than God in terms of your love and adoration. Idolatry is simply human ego. Who would have thought of it? It's something on the inside. It's that impulse deep down inside every one of us that turns everything back to me. It's a hard thing. Really. You know, I remember when I was very young, I learned a horrible, nasty four-letter word. And you know, that word has never been able to be eradicated from my vocabulary. It's spelled M-I-N-E. Mine. That's the human heart. But if your heart can truly be turned toward God rather than toward your idolatrous self, well, then the kingdom of God has come. It's right there in your heart where Rome can't get to. And when that happens, it changes everything about the way you live. Trust me. Do you remember what Jesus said when the Pharisees questioned him about politics? They said, if you're the Messiah, where's the kingdom? And Jesus responded, the kingdom is within you. See, Jesus is drawing a clear and fast distinction between what appears to be on the outside and what actually is on the inside. And that's the key, folks, to the Sermon on the Mount. We've got to get that clear because every verse, everything that Jesus says is relating, is presuming that question. Are things what they seem to be or are things what they really are? And these things are especially problematic in the church. You know the game that we play in the church? We play this game. Look, I'll let you pretend to be what you are if you let me pretend to be what I am. And we'll just go along doing our church thing, pretending to be something that we're not. See, a lot of people believe hypocrisy is the difference between what I am and what I'd like to be. That's not hypocrisy. We're all there. Hypocrisy is pretending there's no difference from what I am and what I'd like to be. Okay, keep that in mind now, because that's going to be the key to what we're doing today in this very familiar passage. So let's look together at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Let's listen to Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
You're the light of the world, a city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and hide it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people that they may see the good that you do and glorify your Father in heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Jesus says, you are salt, you are light. We are a city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, at the very least, these are all objects of importance in the world of the first century. Think about people who had no public light. Think about what that would mean, that you are the light of the world. In a world where there's no media, there's no, <laughs> there's no electricity. In, in fact, the Hebrew word for electricity today is chashmal. Chashmal is not in the Bible. We had to invent it because they didn't have electricity in this world. These are things that are exceedingly important. Public light. You're a city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. All objects of importance. We could call them images of significance. That's what I'd like to go for today. So let me ask you something. What does significance look like to you? Get that picture in your mind. What do you see when you see success? There was a book published some years ago by a guy named John T. Malloy, and the book is called Dress for Success. Malloy makes the point that we can read people by the way they dress. Certain styles of clothing, certain colors have meaning. The outside is everything. It even says, the number one book to make you look like a million so you can make a million. How about that? Google that. Malloy actually has a website out there offering wardrobe advice to people who want to get somewhere. Here, I've got a quote from you from Malloy's book. Listen to what he says. A few years ago, a Midwestern politician running for a minor office called me to consult. Well, I could tell right away he had no chance of winning. So you know what I did? I changed the way that he dresses. And now he is the governor of the state. Who knew it was that easy, huh? <laughs> wow, just like that. And then Malloy has these quirky examples that he gives. He says that people who wear bow ties are liars. I don't see anybody wearing bow ties today. <laughs> but even if you were, you wouldn't tell me the truth about that, right? Yeah. So what about the other things? Well, Malloy says that if you want to be thought of as an authority, then you've got to wear a blue suit. If you want people to trust you, you wear a white shirt. And Malloy says a red tie is very important because the color red conveys power. You're somebody who makes things happen. So Malloy has this notion that if you want to be successful, you simply got to look successful. The outside is all you need. Let me ask you this. What do you think success looked like to people in Jesus' day? Could be the gold and silver tied to the garments of the upper class. These were significant. They were emblematic of their position and their wealth. Maybe on the other hand, it would be the lateral crest on the centurion's helmet. I tell you, when you saw one of these, you hit the deck because it was abject power. 
These are all outer images of significance, of success. Well, I'd like to focus our attention just now on another image from the biblical world. I'm talking about the city of Sephoris. I was actually just at the ruins of this city a few weeks ago. And when the group was looking around at some of the remains, I said, okay, go ahead and look at the palace. I'm going to think a little bit about this. And I got to thinking about what the builders of this great city in Galilee, where there aren't that many great cities, I got to tell you, intended to convey through the architecture at that city. Sephoris was a major urban center in Galilee near Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. It was the seat of northern government, newly built on a mountaintop right in the center of the administrative tetrarchy of the region. No city in Galilee was more important in the early first century than was Sephoris, and its physical situation conveyed that. But maybe you don't recognize the name this morning. Well, that would probably be because Sephoris is not mentioned in the New Testament. Isn't that curious? Here was a lavishly appointed city, the center of an important region of the country, no more than three to four miles north of Nazareth, the boyhood home of Jesus. You'd think it would have made its way into the Bible, wouldn't you? Right? But it's not there. And that omission is peculiar. It's curious to me. Sephoris was the first of several monumental building projects of Antipas, one of the three surviving heirs of an illustrious father, Herod the Great. Antipas's dad, Herod the Great, was the most celebrated architect in the Roman world, and he had high hopes for his son from the time Antipas was just a young boy. So Herod sent Antipas to study architecture in Rome. Now, to be able to study anything in Rome was a pretty big deal, but to study architecture there, well, that was really something. Rome was a magical place of grandeur and design. An aging Emperor Augustus once said of it, I found a city made of brick, and I left it made of marble. And Antipas spent his formative years there, and he resolved that he, like his father, will build great cities someday. He would impress the emperor with his ability, and he would achieve the fame and fortune reserved for people of importance, of real significance in the Roman world. And he came to imagine that Sephoris could play a key role in that. His plan was utopian, in a region not generally known for great architectural achievements. Towns in Galilee were small and sited on the rim of a geographical circle. In fact, the word galil in Hebrew actually means circle. And the idea was to leave plenty of room in the middle for the farmland that was the backbone of the northern economy. The priority was not city building. The priority was farmland. But Antipas wanted to position himself for success, and he was willing to do anything necessary to make that happen. He was convinced that a tremendous city built high and conspicuously right on the nose of the Galilee Circle, would tell the world that he was a player. Well, as it turned out, Antipas was right. Sephora's situation would bring the attention he desired and the wealth of the world, too. Decorated as it was with the exotic products of the East on their way to Western markets in Greece and Rome, 
In no time, the city swelled to a population of 30,000 souls. That's a huge soul for the first century world. A huge population. Very much the sort of place, by the way, where upscale Jews could feel comfortable as well. Near his palace, Antipas erected villas with ritual purification fonts for the religious. And his aim was to curry favor with them too, with the Jewish aristocracy, and he hoped that somehow, someday, when people thought of the name Herod, well, they would think of him and not his father. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus once called Sephorus the ornament of the Galilee. And so it was. Now, you're probably wondering where we're going with this. Is this the travel log today or what? What does Sephorus have to do with the discussion of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, you remember I said that Sephorus was built on the summit of a mountain. If you wanted to be big time in the first century, you had to urbanize. You had to build up, not just out. Mountain cities, even today, with buildings that scrape the sky, they gain attention. They can be seen from miles away, like Manhattan. I, I say, think about that every time I go across the Tappan Zee Bridge, right? You can see Manhattan from there. And Antipas was determined to build his capital just that way, on the pinnacle of a mountain. But his ambitions, folks, in the end, would come at a terrible price for the local population. Taxes and land ties skyrocketed to finance his dreams. And then, what little remained in the hands of the people ultimately found its way into the coffers of Antipas through debt exploitation. Using debt to strip people of their land and livelihood, I can tell you, is a tactic of oppression still used today, right? For well over a decade, all of Galilee fell under the burden of Antipas's drive for recognition, a burden partly borne by a young artisan growing up nearby a teenager from Nazareth named Jesus. Nazareth, well, Nazareth was nothing, really. 20 to 30 families, tops. No major roads, no permanent groundwater. You could easily have missed it. In fact, it is missing on many of the maps of the day. It was too small, too insignificant. And what of Jesus as a teenager? Well, as an apprentice craftsman, he would have been useful to the Antipan regime in the north. He would have been conscripted to work at the construction site of Sephorus. And there, under the harsh conditions of a labor camp, he would have served duty as part of a work crew, hauling the stone needed to build the city. Every time I sit in that theater, I think about Jesus, who knew theater language. Could he have hauled that stone that was used to build Antipas's theater? Probably. M Malloy would put it like this, Sephorus was dressed for success. And like New York, the city that never sleeps, Sephorus gained itself a slogan too. Marcus Agrippa, an old friend of the family, once called Sephorus the city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. So what is Jesus' point? in robbing a line meant for Sephorus and using that to describe us, people who would follow him. Well, I think he's simply saying that success looks an awful lot different in the kingdom of God than it does in the kingdoms of this world. 
Josephus says that at sunrise, the forest would literally light up. Its Meleke limestone could take your breath away. But Jesus has something else in mind. He says to those who would listen, let your light shine before others, that they may see the good that you do. See, the kingdom of God is not about what we wear, our degrees, our achievements, our pretense to status. Success in the kingdom is about demonstrating with our behavior that people matter, all kinds of people. You know what that looks like? Look at Jesus in the upper room, draped in the towel of a servant, crawling around in the dirt on his hands and knees, washing the feet of his dinner guests. There are so many stories of people of lowly position tending to the needs of those above them on the social register. It's normal in those days, both then and now, too. But there are no stories, I guarantee you, like this one in the ancient world. The kingdom is different. On the night he was betrayed, the Messiah of Israel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, grabs a basin of water and dragging a rag behind him, washes the filthy feet of those he'd invited to dinner. And then he says, I'm setting before you here an example that you must do as I have done. This disturbs me. Because Jesus' humility is not a suggestion. It's a mandate for all of us. It's what makes us Christian. When we get down and dirty, tending to the conditions of people who can offer us nothing in return, well, that's the kind of thing that makes a difference in the world. Folks, it really doesn't matter much what a church looks like. Our size and signboards will never build the kingdom of God and the community is around us. Kingdom building is about service. The right church can never be a closed society. It's got to be out there, prominently displayed through action in the world. When we renounce the idols of freedom and reputation and humbly put service of others above our own security and survival, that's what changes things. Antipas, well, he would achieve what he desired. Most people get what they want. The dynastic name Herod would be accorded to him. And in the eyes of the world, he'd made it with Sephorus shining out his success like lights on Broadway. It was a short run, though. Antipas would eventually become an embarrassment to the Romans and be exiled to Gaul, there to live out his life in anonymity. Sephorus, too, would follow him. It lies there today. We'll visit that in August. It's still there, and it merits not even a single mention in the gospel narratives. But what of the city of God this morning? What of us? Well, like a mustard seed buried deep within good soil, we don't look all that like much, do we? But oh, when we come to life and we start growing and we start bringing life and nothing can stop that. That's what happens when the church emerges from its stained glass isolation 
and brings the light of the gospel to the world. The day before his papal election, Cardinal Jorge Bacoglio quoted a verse from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. You know this verse. Maybe you've even seen the painting. There he is, Jesus standing outside a door, and he's knocking. But then Bergoglio added something. He said, but today, my friends, Christ is knocking from inside the church. He wants to get out. Remember the question behind the Sermon on the Mount? What if it's not about appearances after all? The impression we create by the way we dress up our lives, hoping to get the most out of what the world thinks of us. And what if Jesus actually meant what he said? That to be the people of God, we've got to pick up an apron and a towel and follow him in the service of others. Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think the church that does that is the right church. Will you stand with me for prayer? Heavenly Father, I ask that you leave us just now unsettled about the conditions of those around us. Those who live every day with the realities of hunger and hopelessness and war. Bless us with discomfort and easy answers and mixed motives that keep us within our cloistered cells. Help us find deeper soil that the kingdom of God might grow within us and in the hearts of people outside our walls. Bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in the world around us, not by the images we convey to appeal to people, but authentically through our service. By doing what many believe cannot be done, but what Jesus commands us to do, live out the light of the gospel in our dark and broken world. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.